ask that you would use those words from Scripture, the thoughts we're going to think, the words I'm going to speak in these next few minutes, and we ask that you would use all of that to help make us new in your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, good to see all of you here. Good to see those of you who are on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. My sister-in-law makes the best cookies ever in the world. I have been known to eat up to 20 to 30 in one sitting. My wife, that is a true statistic. My wife can actually verify that. But I am not the only one. I remember years ago when I was staying at their house, I woke up at about 3 in the morning to the sound of a chair being dragged across the kitchen floor. So I got up and I found my four-year-old nephew literally with his hand in the cookie jar. And he looked at me and without missing a beat, the kid goes, Mom told me to get up and get a cookie. (laughs) At 3 a.m.? Are you kidding me? So I shuffled him back to bed and and then I went back and ate some cookies. (laughs) I was up. I couldn't resist. It's kind of amusing when it's cookies, but there are a lot of things in our lives that we can't resist that can actually wreck our lives. If folks give in to some kind of sexual temptation, it leaves them feeling ashamed and secretive and it wrecks marriages. In our culture, consumerism, huge temptation. We shop to feel better. So many folks are living at the financial margins. Not only that, they're not knowing the joy of giving to others to make a difference in the world. Our rage issues or our tendency to be overly critical all the time, that can wreck relationships and marriages and all kinds of stuff. What is it for you? What is it that you have a hard time resisting that kind of makes a mess of your life? And is there anything in your life, have there been times in your life when you've done something you're not so proud of? That's what's kind of at stake in the familiar story that we're going to look at today where King David commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and then has her husband murdered to cover it up. (coughs) It's a familiar story straight out of the tabloids and it just wrecks a whole bunch of lives. That's why I've titled this sermon, How to Mess Up Your Life in Three Easy Steps. Because that's what this story shows us how to do. Now, if it so happens that you don't want to mess up your life, just do the opposite of what David does in this story. But whatever you do, don't blow this off as either too familiar or think, you know what, I haven't committed adultery and murder lately, so it doesn't apply to me. Now, we sin in more socially acceptable ways, most of us, but it can still be very, very devastating. But even in that, there is hope. And this story also shows us that God redeems, renews, restores, makes all things new, which is important. Because, you know, sometimes I compare myself to other people. They seem to have it all together. And I think, man, I am such a mess. No way God can use me. This story shows that God gives us new lives even when we have screwed up. So let's dive in. How to really mess up your life in three easy steps. Step one, be in the wrong place. This story starts with one of the most profound lines in Scripture. It says, In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed. Notice what time he's getting up. Lazy boy. And he walked around on the roof of his palace and from there saw a woman bathing. Now, folks stored rainwater on their roofs, so that's where they bathed. She is doing nothing wrong here. The woman was very beautiful. Game over. Game over. He is not where he is supposed to be at all. It is the time of year when kings go off to war. He has sent his army out to defend the nation. That's where he should be. Not sleeping in, getting up in the afternoon and being a peeping Tom. He has already lost the battle because he is not where he is supposed to be. 
<clears throat> See, so often when we give in to temptation, it's not the moment we give in that we lo- where we lost. It happens somewhere upstream. Somewhere upstream where we sort of let ourselves dwell on that stray sexual thought or, or you go to the mall even though you got a shopping addiction or whatever it is. You know, David did not get up that morning or that evening, did not get up and say, you know what? God, what a great day to have an affair. No, he was vulnerable because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. And not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. Mad, sad, tired, bored. We are most vulnerable to temptation in those states. Mad, sad, tired, bored. And I think the worst is bored. David here is having the stereotypical midlife crisis. This is the equivalent of the man who buys the sports car and the cheap cologne and leaves his family for the aerobics instructor named Bambi. My apologies to any Bambis out there. David here, he's in midlife. He's been king for a while. Through his leadership, Israel, for the first time in its history, has secure borders. The economy is booming. He is at the top of his game. But something's missing. The fizz seems to have gone out of life. You know, we first saw David as a teenager defeating Goliath while the rest of the army cowered in fear. His motto was, fight courageously, live passionately, risk it all for God. What happened to that guy? What happened to him? See, when we stop being part of God's rescue mission to rescue this world from the devil's destruction, and when instead our life becomes just about getting more comfort and more prestige and more money and a bigger house and a better school for the kids, when we drop out of God's adventure to rescue this world, we'll go find our own adventure. And it usually wrecks our lives. David just wants a little excitement here. And to get it, he lies, commits adultery, covets, murders, steals. That's half the commandments right there. Right? Last week we saw David, remember, dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments. Now he's dancing around him. To really mess up your life, be in the wrong place. Step two, only think about the present. Next thing David does is he sends a servant to find out about Bathsheba. The servant says she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now that's significant because in this culture you usually weren't identified with your spouse. So this servant is taking a huge risk basically saying, David, she's someone's wife. You really want to do this? Think about it. Think about the consequences. One of the things I've, I've said sometimes to men who are considering affairs, not to be judgmental, but to talk them out of it, which they must want if they're talking to me, because nobody goes to their pastor to be talked into an affair. <laughs> Doesn't usually work that way, right? <laughs> You'll be happy to know. So I'll say sometimes to them, you know, let's just play this out a couple years, okay? Let's say you have the affair, and it's exciting for a while, but then pretty soon, you know what? The mistress often wants to become the wife. So you leave your family to marry her, but she never quite trusts you because the one thing she knows about your character is you were willing to leave your wife. So she is always kind of checking up on you, and then sometimes she wants to have kids with you. So now you have two wives on your case, two sets of kids who don't trust you, two sets of college tuitions to pay. I'm sorry, value add? (laughs) See, how about you revitalize that marriage you've got? That's the better way. So often we blind ourselves to the consequences of our actions because we want, we want, we want. In David's case, this sets off a chain of events that lasts 500 years. In the next chapter, one of David's sons rapes his sister. And David, feeling morally compromised himself, does nothing. So then David's other son kills his brother in revenge. 
and then launches a civil war against David, which results in that son's death, and the civil war ends, but it sows the seeds of the breakup of the nation that happens a generation later and lasts for 500 years, and you thought your family was messed up. See, temptation is always a matter of stepping on dollars to pick up pennies. I recently read about a woman who had a creative idea for a business. In, in New York City, a lot of folks own pets, but there's no land. So when it dies, you can't just you know, bury Fido in the backyard. And the city charges $50 or more just to remove the pet, right? So this woman put an ad on Craigslist and said, I'll take care of your pet's remains for $25. Then she went and bought a bunch of old suitcases at Salvation Army for $2 a piece. So when someone called, she'd put the remains, the pet's remains, in the suitcase. Then she'd go down to the subway, put the suitcase down right next to her and stand there like it was really valuable, but then look the other way. Eventually, a thief would steal the suitcase. Uh-huh. Imagine the surprise, right, when you open that. Whoa, I, I, I thought it was going to really be valuable, but it's just fluffy, right? So often, we grab at things that we think are going to make us happy, and they just bring death. <laughs> if you want to wreck your life, just think only about gratification now. And then step three, if you want to wreck your life, don't tell anybody your secrets. David has Bathsheba brought to him, which means adultery is too mild of a term. It's much closer to rape, actually. She gets pregnant. So to cover it up, David sends her husband, Uriah, who is fighting in the war, sends for, her to come, for him to come home, hoping that if Uriah comes home, he'll sleep with Bathsheba and he'll look like the father, right? But Uriah sleeps on the ground outside the palace. David even gets him drunk. But Uriah says, how can I sleep with my wife when my fellow soldiers are sleeping on the ground and fighting a war? See, Uriah drunk has more honor than David sober. So then David tells the commander, when you attack the city, put Uriah in the front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw, which the commander does. So Uriah is killed, but not just him, the entire division. So David doesn't just kill one man, he kills a lot. And then he marries Bathsheba, all to keep it secret. See, so often when we have done something we're not proud of, or when we're in some kind of mess that we're not proud of, we think the worst thing in the world is that someone could discover my sin. Wrong. The worst thing is that nobody does. And then it eats at us, and it erodes our sense of self. And we begin to feel shame, which causes us to hide even more. And then we don't feel known, and we feel like imposters, and we are haunted by the thought, if only they knew then they wouldn't. Which is why the rule in my life is everything in my life has to be known by someone. I have no secrets, and that is freeing. So, there are three easy steps to really mess up your life. What do you think? You think you could do it? I am more than capable. But the good news is that God loves us so much, he does not let us persist in messing up our lives if we'll let him in. That he redeems, he renews, he restores, and David shows that story, David's story shows that as well. So let's say that you don't want to wreck your life. Okay, let's just say you don't want to really mess things up. What do you do then? What are the steps then to take toward a renewed life? Well, step one toward a renewed life is trust that God is good. See, we're tempted when we believe that God's not good. So we begin to think things like, you know what? God just doesn't want me to have fun. That's the problem here. Besides, I deserve this. I, I work hard. I need to fudge my expense account. My boss doesn't pay me enough. My overspending is a good thing. It stimulates the economy. Now, the way out of that is to remind ourselves that God is good and his rules are meant to help us have joy. 
that we actually really do feel better when we don't gossip because that makes us feel all negative. And when our conversations are positive, we actually feel better than if we gossip and end up all junked up. That sexual intimacy is actually best when we stick with one person for life rather than acquire a lot of baggage from multiple encounters. And yeah, that can be hard to do, but as we work at it and forgive each other in marriage, that deepens emotional intimacy, and that's the best sex you're ever going to have. See, God says the problem is not that you're a hedonist. Problem is not that you're a hedonist. It's that you're not enough of one. You seek quick, temporary pleasures instead of sustaining lasting ones. Every command of God is not about taking joy from you. It is about helping you find it. Step two, for a renewed life, never run from temptation, run to something else instead. I've told you this before. If you keep saying to yourself, I will not gossip, I will not lust, I will not, will not, what are you thinking about? The temptation, right? Don't run from, run to something else that is fun and whole and life-giving instead. Step three, for a renewed life, embrace conviction. After David's sin, the prophet Nathan tells him a story, the one that we just read, about a rich man had a whole, whole herds of sheep. Poor man had only one lamb, and that was the family pet. Rich man had a visitor. Rather than just take one of his many sheep, he takes the one lamb from the poor man. David hears this. He gets furious. He says, the, the man who did this should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Busted. Now, at this point, David easily could have had Nathan killed. But here's what's great about David. Instead, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And he embraces conviction. And conviction, as you've heard me say, is different than shame and guilt. Shame and guilt come from the devil. Conviction says, I did wrong. Shame and guilt says, I am wrong. Conviction is when we think, how do I become the kind of person who can do this? But then we hear God's voice saying, I got a better way. You want to try it? And this is both David's worst moment, but I think it's also his best. This is the moment why I think God calls him a man after God's own heart, because he admits his sin. And it seems so simple, but we have such a hard time doing it, don't we? That's so hard. So, so we end up saying things like, you know, mistakes were made. Or when we apologize to someone, I'm sorry that you took offense at what I said. I'm sorry you're so sensitive, right? Far out. David doesn't do that. He just says, I have sinned, full stop. No justifications, no caveats, no denials. He doesn't stand up there and say, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Bathsheba. People under 40 don't get that historical reference. (laughs) Those of you who laughed just showed your age. He He just says, I sinned. See, I think David had been miserable with guilt up until this point. And I think Nathan's confrontation comes as a relief to him. Trust that God is good. Run to, not from. Embrace conviction. Step four, believe that you are fully forgiven. Because this is what changes us. Psychiatrist named Carl Menninger, not a Christian, but he says, if I could convince my patients they were truly forgiven, 75% of them would never see me again. See, you can have a better future, but you got to let go of trying to have a better past. You can have a better future, but you've got to let go of trying to have a better past. What you've done cannot be undone. But God can make it new. God can forgive. God can redeem. That's why Nathan says to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. And notice the verb there. God has taken away your sin. Not just forgiven. He has taken it away. See, we are more than just forgiven sinners. God himself says, I will remember their sin no more. 
You've heard it said that you are a sinner saved by grace. No, you were a sinner. If you know Jesus, you are now his adopted son, his adopted daughter. If we know Jesus, his death has paid the price for our sins. So now when God looks at us, he does not see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus applied to us. It's what theologians call imputed righteousness. As you know, I'm on the board of trustees at Whitworth University. And one of my roles is to encourage students to go there, which is easy to do. It's a great Christian university, easy for me to encourage folks to do that. And so whenever I get a chance, I talk Whitworth up. But it's not like I'm killing myself trying to get students there. Well, last week I was at a trustee meeting and the director of admissions was talking about how recruitment was going. And then he said, and the number one church that sends us students is Scott's church. I honestly looked around for a different Scott. (laughs) One of the deans gave me a high five. Now, that's that's none of my doing. That's just y'all deciding to go to Whitworth. Same thing happened a couple of weeks ago. I was in a, a meeting where they were talking about the good things that this church is doing, Auto Angels, Jubilee Reach, that sort of thing. And the man who was talking kept pointing to me and saying, his church does this, his church does that. Man, you guys make me look so good. That's imputed righteousness. That's not anything I've done. That's what you all are doing. But because I'm associated with you all, I get the credit. Thanks. <laughs> That's kind of how it works with Jesus' righteousness. If we associate with him, we get his righteousness. And when we really get that, we don't want to sin anymore. See, sometimes preachers don't want to talk about God's grace because they're afraid it will encourage people to sin. Go out and think things like, I like to sin, God likes to forgive, the world is admirably arranged. (laughs) But that's not how it works. When you really get that your sin has been taken away, you don't want to sin again. It's like when I do yard work and I get all muddy, then I take a shower. Last thing I want to do after that shower is go roll in the mud again. See, when you really get your forgiven, it makes you new. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences that we face for our sin. Of course there are. David faced consequences. But God can make us new. Which brings me to the last step, and that is to trust God's power to make you new, all things new. There's a beautiful line in this story where after the child that Bathsheba has dies, which in the end may have been a mercy, because child would have been considered illegitimate and a rival to the throne. That combo would have made that child's life miserable. But after the child dies, it says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon and the Lord loved him. See, by embracing conviction and God's forgiveness, David entered into a process where God was healing and making all things new. And even though David had other wives, which was another one of his sins, God told him not to, but he just, you know, God said one wife is enough, but he decided to sin. Even though he had other wives, other sons, and one of his wives was the daughter of King Saul. Even though that's true, it is not the royal daughter of Saul that the line of David is passed down through and from which comes Jesus. It's the commoner Bathsheba, the woman who unfairly would have been sexually tainted in that culture. She's the mother of the heir. Her son becomes heir to the throne, and from that line eventually comes Jesus. That says something about God's grace. That says something about his ability to make all things new. Pastor John Ortberg talks about a time when a seminary professor named Dr. B came to his church to talk about reaching out to broken and sinful people. And a woman raised her hand and said, well, what if I don't like that kind of church? What if I just want a regular church with normal people? Whatever that would be, right? So Dr. B said, you know what? There are, all, there are a lot of churches like that and most of them are dying. 
But what I want to know is who's going to care about, and then he just rips off this string of adjectives. Who's going to care about the whiskey guzzling, wife swapping, adult channel surfing, child neglecting, tax evading, ladder climbing, self-obsessed SOB? Well, everyone was just shocked, right? Like nobody had heard that kind of language in that church before. Then one of the deacons raises his hands and he goes, you mean sons of Baptists? <laughs> Precisely. Who is going to reach out to the sons and daughters of Baptists and Presbyterians and maybe even Methodists and anyone else who messes up? Who is going to reach? There's only one God who does it. Every other God rejects us when we sin. There is one God who follows us when we sin, and his name is Jesus. And he pursues, and he pursues, and he pursues. I have a friend whose aunt named Shannon died not too long ago. And Shannon's father had abandoned the family when she was really young. And even after she was married and had kids, her father only visited her a couple of times in 23 years of marriage. Many of you know the pain of a parent who hurts you over and over again. Well, in her 40s, Shannon got cancer. And then her dad suddenly wanted to re-enter her life. And he, he started visiting more. He apologized. He asked forgiveness for the ways that he had hurt her. He confessed what he had done. But Shannon was now ready to let him back in. After all these years, after so much hurt, why now? Well, in the final stages of her life, she was pretty much confined to bed, and she loved flowers, so every day her husband would bring her flowers and put them by her bed. Except one day, it wasn't her husband who brought the flowers, it was her dad. And he went to the florist, bought the biggest arrangement he could find, went into her bedroom, put them down by the side of her bed, and she started to cry. After all those years, her dad was finally bringing his little girl flowers. And her heart that had been cold and stony melted. And the wounds and the hurt that were 40 years in the making began to heal. And over the next few months, her dad hardly ever left her side. Because of God's grace, a family was restored and made new, even after so much sin, even after so much pain. And you know what? Even if that dad had not asked forgiveness, I bet God, I know Jesus, would have healed those wounds in some other way because that's what he does. So what's your story? Where maybe you feel tempted? Or where have you messed up? Do you believe that through Jesus you can overcome it? It may not be easy. It may take time. It may take years. But do you believe through Jesus that you can overcome it? You know, you read through the Bible, and there is not one noble person in the whole thing except for Jesus. Abraham lied. Jacob manipulated. David shatters the commandments. Not one good example in the whole darn book. And yet God uses them all, and not one is disqualified. And this is one of the reasons that I am a Christian. As I have shared with you in so many ways over the years, I'm a mess. I mean, just ask my wife. She can totally verify that. I'm a mess. I'm committed to integrity, and yet on occasion I've lied just to make myself look better. I'm loving, but I'm capable of intense anger, often over the pettiest of things. Everyone says I'm so open about my flaws, so transparent in the pulpit. No, I'm not. It's only what I want you to know. Don't be fooled. <laughs> I deeply desire godly behavior and yet struggle with deep desires that are in no way godly. I am giving, but also selfish. I am full of faith and sometimes completely faithless. I'm a saint with an incredible capacity for sin. It is a good thing that good sinners make good preachers. And yet it is this mess that God says he loves and that he can use, not because of anything I've done, not because of any virtue on my own, because I don't have any, but because of what Jesus did on the cross to pay my debt and make me new. And I know that some of you can relate. Adultery, 
pornography, gossip, pride, materialism, marriages on the rock, broken, broken relationships of all kind. We're all on that list somewhere, but Jesus doesn't judge you and neither do I. He came to rescue us, which is why I also see marriages being healed and addictions overcome and families being restored because God's grace always has the last word and he makes all things new. If you compromise your integrity and lie with Jesus, grace still gets the last word. If you shop too much, spending money you don't have, neglecting the needs of others, if Jesus is in the mix, grace gets the last word. When lust and greed and pride and gossip and petty bickering multiply with Jesus, grace always gets the last word. The whole Bible can be summed up in four words. God never gives up. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on you or on me. And he can make all things new, including you. Yeah, but pastor, if you just knew what I'd done, including you. But pastor, you don't understand. Including you. But Pat, including you. Through Jesus, the Father is seeking you, and he calls you by name. And he says, I know, I know the enemy has convinced you to do bad things, but you are not a bad man, you are not a bad woman, you are mine. And I am your Father who loves you and makes you new, so that you are my son, you are my daughter, and in you I am well pleased. God never gives up, not on me. And not on you. Jesus, we claim that. We confess that we blow it. We confess that we sin in all kinds of ways. But Lord, we also cling to your grace and your forgiveness and your power to make all things new. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew within us a right spirit that we may walk with you into the joy, the power, and the victorious life that you came to give us. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.